0: I'm going to pray, I'll read it to you, and then let's get into it. Father, thanks uh, for what we've already been thinking about this morning. Thank you for the way that you are shaping us by your word and for the receptiveness uh, of each person in the room, myself included, as we've been sitting under your word. Please continue that now. Give us that last spurt of energy. Give us that last ability to listen and to discern what is good and therefore to take it and place it in our hearts and lives. Father, uh, help us as we do that, and uh, not just teach us, but humble us, admonish us, refine us. Uh, we pray, speak order into our chaos. In Jesus' name, Amen. Uh, Acts 2, I'm just going to read 41 to 47. 41 just gives us the, a bit of the context. Uh, Those who accepted his message, Peter's one who's speaking, those who accepted Peter's message were baptised. About 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, into fellowship, into the breaking of bread, into prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And we read that passage and the first thing we should say is, wow. Wow, what a picture. Uh, What a picture, what it would have been like to be part of that first church. What an astonishing thing to have witnessed and seen, just think of it, 3,000 people coming to the church on that day. You've got a river uh, right near your church. Imagine, you know, a whole bunch of people come wandering in this week, 3,000, let's take them down to the river and baptise them, because you, you're going to do it at the river at that point, aren't you? That font and church ain't going to be big enough. How amazing must have been. What, what an experience to be there. You know, 120 people meeting together in the morning, 3,120 by the afternoon. That's quite the church growth strategy, isn't it? And that's what happens when we are stirred by the Spirit together. And this is where your church began in this passage. This is where your church began. Not 200 years ago on that piece of grass in Richmond when Governor Quarry set aside the land but 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem as the Holy Spirit moved the Apostles to speak the gospel for the first time to deliberately show the gospel in their gathering that first time and establish the Jerusalem church. And from that first gathering onwards the message of Jesus who is Christ the Lord has travelled throughout the world and across time not just been spoken but then being embodied as local churches have been formed around that gospel message that Jesus Christ is Lord. Stirred by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit being the driver of these things, the church has carried the gospel across nations and generations and here we sit in Australia talking about it still. And so what are you at Richmond doing about it? And what are you going to do about it? How is it? affecting you and how is the spirit stirring you to follow these things through according to your public information that uh, anyone can find I say anyone because I managed to find it uh, is that it's not all about the building with you guys you have one but it's not all about the building rather it's that message that you slap up on everything that you are living lives for Jesus If you try and dig under that a little bit, you find very quickly that you value certain things, that you value the Bible, prayer, godliness, church, family, equipping, evangelism, sending and stewardship. So that gives content to what living lives for Jesus looks like because lives are driven by values. Well, that's what the values look like and obviously values like that are going to then turn into a whole bunch of behaviours. Although someone might say to you at that point in time, well, just hold on a moment, hold on a moment. You say you're stirred by the Spirit, but are you really stirred by the Spirit? Because we've got this little picture in the Bible here in Acts chapter 2 of a church that certainly was stirred by the Spirit. So when you look in the mirror and look at yourselves, do you see this? Or do you see something else? This is one of those accusations of Satan. One of those accusations of the evil one who would say, well, you don't look like that, so therefore you're not valid. Or it could be a good spurring on by the Spirit. Oh, have a look at your roots and really, are we gone off stray? Of course. It's an interesting question, isn't it? When you consider yourself as a church, the local church family, and then you look at this passage, how do you feel? What do you see? What do you notice? Are you jealous? Are you inspired? Are you pleased? Are you disappointed? It still feels like it's the wrong question. We really need to ask the, the right question, which is, should the church now look just like it did in Acts chapter 2? Should it look that way? If so, why so? And if not, why not? If so, it should look like that, then why? And if not, then, then why not? Because for all it's all that it is claimed about what the church should be and should do according to people's expectations and according to what you might find in various points in the Bible as you read through it, all of us need to be sure of these things. We need to be clear about these things so that we can do lives for Jesus together. Not just do lives for Jesus. Anyone can do it as an individual, but to do it together means we're going to need to agree on what the church is and what it isn't, what its purpose is and what it shouldn't be and how it Moves together and how it resembles what we find in the Bible, and that's how we want to conclude. So I'm going to try and you know, draw the the strings together as we conclude this time. How it is that we are stirred by the Spirit together, and what does it match? and we began yesterday in John 13 to 17, and we learned there, of course, the church is the result of the prayer of Jesus that he asked the Father to fulfil. The Father then sends the Spirit after Christ's resurrection and bada-boom, bada-bam, bada-boom, Pentecost happens, we have the church. Uh, God is faithful to the prayer of his Son. The Spirit indeed agrees. And this is done, as Jesus talked about it in that Upper Room Discourse, done so that the whole world might know that God the Father sent his Son, that he loves his church just as he loves his Son. The church's visible love for one another makes the gospel visible to the world. Not just audible, but visible. And so as individuals then hear the gospel, believe and respond, they respond by obeying Christ. And obeying Christ means they come together into his church. And that's how then the gospel takes on physical, visible, relational appearance. An astonishing miracle. Uh, For those people who say, you know, there's no miracles anymore in the world, I don't know what happened to God and all these miracles, but He's gone. There's nothing more miraculous than you getting out of bed and going to church. That's astonishing that you would. Like, really? You know your own heart. I don't, but I know mine. It's an astonishing miracle that God could overcome all those things, all that DNA, all that cultural influence, and we still gather together and praise His name. And that he might do the even greater miracle and bring a rank outsider an unbeliever in and convert them. Miracles are happening every day in the church. We just don't seem to notice. But that's miraculous. That's the Holy Spirit doing his work as he promised. Convicting people of sin and helping them to understand righteousness and what to do walking forward into the future. And that's why the individual Christian finds their place in the church and it becomes visible into the world because we're doing it together. Now, it's all very challenging to our rugged individualism and the challenge continues. The challenges we've just seen as we looked at those four passages together is not only do you need to get up in the morning and, you know, have a shower and get dressed and think, what should I wear to church today? Like, you know, for some of us that's a battle enough. You know, how many outfits do you put out in the bed and, and reject some of us don't think clearly enough about what we were to church. I think. Um, I'm not going to say anything about gender at that point. Uh, but not only do we need to think how we will present ourselves physically, we actually need to, as we have just heard from Colossians 3 in particular, you've got to take off a whole lot of stuff before you come here. You've got to put on a whole lot of stuff. We've got to dress spiritually, emotionally, relationally, with our attitudes and our actions take off and put on and so this is how we then get together and behave now we don't get many examples in the bible of what it looks like when they gather all those letters that are written that we've looked at paul's letters and peter's letters the letter to the hebrews are all written to churches who are getting it wrong by the way that's why they needed the letters because those various apostles heard about their issues and said mm, we need to give you some instruction guys so you know they pray they write those letters and off the letter goes and and then you get to Revelation and you see John 7 letters to the church and the church of Ephesus has gone so bad it gets an absolute hammering from the Lord Jesus. And the church in Laodicea is, is warned about to get spat out of his mouth because they're so ridiculously off track. So God is constantly needing to talk to us and bring content to us and everything you read in the Bible about these churches, well, you don't actually see a church functioning in really any other point except this tiny moment, this little snapshot we get here in Acts chapter 2. This is pretty much the one description of the church gathered we get. And that's why we need to look at it. So coming to the passage then, we find ourselves in Jerusalem just after the day of Pentecost, uh, that day when the Holy Spirit came on the apostles, stirred up the city, and then Peter preached the gospel publicly for the very first time. And it was done in all the languages of the people who were present. Not in languages they couldn't understand, but languages they could understand, which is why they were converted and saved whole bunch of people went home to their own cities and other places and so we find the gospel spreading from this moment from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth which is where we are today. But this little snapshot we get here in Acts 2 all happened that night, the next day and the following weeks. So it's giving a snapshot of what it looked like for the church to gather together. That's the amazing result that happens when the gospel's preached and people give their lives to Jesus. Uh, so here before us, uh, I've lost track, we're in Acts, here, Acts 2. Here before us then is our church in its earliest moments. What we have right here as we look at this, this description, Acts 2, is your baby photo. Here you are, all cute and lovely. Uh, this is the baby photo of the church. Not that photo, this one, the description. Back in the days when our skin was unblemished and our wrinkles were cute bulges of fat and skin, and we gurgled and cooed, content to be who God made us to be in his spirit. And we nestled in his arms by faith, which is the only way... You you want to know what faith is, look at a baby, because that's all they've got. They've got nothing else. Get A lot of unpleasantness they bring to the party, but they they do bring faith. Uh, And they definitely have that in abundance. That's what the first and early church looked like. Content to be who God made us to be by the Spirit and just dying to be together and like a baby's longing for attention, longing for relationship, thus God's people, longing for relationship. But what was the eye colour, height and weight? What were the true features as the church then took its first steps? Well, that's what we have here. The first one there is verse 41. Newly baptised people. Uh, The church on that first day had only new believers making up its number. That was the church. Remember, there was 120 at the start of the day, then 3,120 by the end of the day. It's only got new believers making up. There were some hangers-on who were kicking the tyres and wanting to come in, maybe, not sure. But that's who the church was made up of. Except for the apostles and these, they were all new converts, all brand-new converts. And all of them on this occasion had come straight out of Judaism, which of course changes the kind of baggage that you are going to bring to the church compared to what you're going to find when a new believer comes out of Richmond into your church. Very unlikely they're going to bring Judaism baggage with them. They'll bring other things. But these ones all did. Which means they all had a similar fear of God's judgment squarely before their eyes. They'd all made a public declaration of faith together. In fact, most of them had actually seen Jesus on the cross die in front of their eyes while they spat and mocked and, and all that they did. It's an amazing picture. But we need to realise, like the picture behind me of this one child at his birth, and any other birth, it's an unrepeatable moment. And here's the key thing you need to know. When you read Acts 2, 41 through 47, this is an unrepeatable moment. It's a baby picture. It's a once-off. So in the same way that, you know, when your child turns 21, like my elders just did recently and we, you know, did the photo wall and I, my wife and I spent hours and buckets of tears going, oh, they're so lovely. Oh, it was great. Um, but it was unrepeatable. It happens, and we rejoice in that, but we don't expect him to be like that anymore. Praise God he's not, but but nor do we hanker that he should be or demand that he might be because that would be well, foolish and it's clearly wrong. And so for us today, we should rejoice as we look at this passage of these verses and this description of what the early church looked like, what we looked like in our first birth. It's an amazing picture, but it's unique. And so if we should be pleased and thrilled and celebrate, but we should not be discouraged... If we don't precisely look like that anymore, in the same way that you're, well, we're all discouraged a little bit by appearance now, I know that as we get older, we get more and more discouraged, but we don't think we should still look like that. The one fact that we should take away is that of publicly baptising new believers into the church family. Uh, That's one key fact we should take out of this. Uh, Like a wedding, a public baptism marks a new beginning in a new set of relationships from now on. It's a new beginning. It's being born anew. And a public moment declaring that, having been baptised, it marks a point that they can see and recognise and look back on and that you as the people who are bringing them into your family can look back and recognise. And then having been baptised, then the question is what they do next. Will it prove whether the baptism was genuine or not? Not did the water work, but whether they were actually truly... A follower of Jesus? Are they really the elect? Our genuine church will nurture anyone who comes to them, nurture and mature those believers. They will now apply the next part of the Great Commission. So, the Great Commission, you go into all the world, baptizing believers, interestingly. Preach the gospel, baptize them. But now that you've got them, what do you do? Well, you don't stop. You're now supposed to teach them to obey everything that Christ commanded. Now, you quickly switch into discipleship. Now, you've got to teach them all those commands. And a church will do that. It will teach. It will teach. And that's precisely what we see here in verse 42. So having collected those 3,000 people that day, what did the church then do? Verse 42 tells us that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Those four things. Devoted. Uh, These four features here show us how a spirit-stirred church Behaves having been converted and baptized and now living out what that looks like. This is how the church dresses itself after the baptism. And we see that they devoted themselves to these four activities to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to fellowship with one another. They devoted themselves to breaking of bread. They devoted themselves to prayer. Each devoted. Devoted together. They weren't forced to do it. When you're devoted to something, you choose to do it, don't you? You choose to have delight, you choose to do it because you are impelled, meaning internal motivation, not compelled, someone else forced you to. That's what it means to be devoted to something, living Newton John, you know, hopelessly devoted to you. Well, these guys weren't hopeless. They had all the hope in the world, but it was an inner motivation. And this is what they valued. So what about us? What about you guys at St. Peter's Richmond? If someone was to, you know, try and write Acts two forty two, a snapshot sentence about you, what might it say? What would it include? Are you devoted to the same things that they were devoted to back then? Well, we can break this down. I've done a little bit of research on you guys. Um, I have presumed one thing though, uh, and I'm Wayne. I better check this, Wayne, uh, do your services run pretty similar to most other Sydney Anglican churches? That's right. You hope so? <laughs> I expect so. I know you well enough to assume this. So I've had to assume this. I did not pick this up from you guys. I've grabbed it from another church. So uh, what are you devoted to? What does your basic Sunday meeting look like? My presumption is it would look like it does in most other Anglican churches, uh, where listening to the Bible and Bible teaching consumes around you know 45% of the meeting. A fellowship, in which I'd include singing uh, and declaration of faith, giving announcements and food after the service, all those things are fellowship moments, about 27%. Breaking bread in communion, when you do communion, I'm not sure how often you do it, when you do it, it's going to consume about you know 15% of your time together. And there's going to be prayer in all kinds of ways, open prayer, closed prayer, led prayer, uh, confessions, etc. It's going to be about 13% of your time together. That's actually still following exactly what we just saw in Acts, isn't it? Devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Sounds fairly familiar. But that's what the minister has to do, and yet Wayne's license depends upon him continuing to do that. Uh, So, uh, what what do you think? What do you think about these things? What do you think is most important? Well, you guys actually did a little survey back in 2016 called the National Church Life Survey, and this is what you said. Uh, The top four aspects that church members value most at Richmond are those, in this order, on the left-hand side here, uh, preaching and Bible teaching, ministry to children and youth, study, prayer, discussion groups, and a contemporary style of worship. Isn't that interesting? You're valuing the things that are still there in Acts 2. Now, you all said lots of things. There's more on the list, and you can dig further down for more things. Uh, but also, you'll see there what's on the right, what you all think you should show more attention to as fast as possible which should be priorities for you as a church is to help one another grow in spiritual growth, to build a sense of community, to nurture, have services, nurture people's faith and include new people. Isn't that encouraging? I was a little bit stressed when Wayne asked me to come and speak on this topic to you guys. I'm thinking, oh my goodness, is he, is he just put me into... A spot where it's like grabbing a bag of cats and shaking up and putting your head in there. Uh, are you that? Are your church in major conflict, which is why you're having a, a, a weekend together called Together? Let's tell. Uh, I wonder if going to come. I had no idea, so I was really, really thankful uh, when I asked for this information. I think, okay, how am I going to spur you guys on to love and good deeds? Well, um, actually, you've already got the picture straight, you actually do so well what the bible's calling you to do so now the question is how are you going to keep on doing it isn't it encouraging you are a church that values today what was valued at the very start you still resemble your baby picture and not just like an old relic that you pull out once in a while and poke at and say well we used to be like that but thank goodness we're not anymore you still value these things and you are thirst for them more at, at its heart uh, your church as a congregation, as it moves together, uh, is a church that is stirred by the Spirit and you resemble that early church. And I just want to say, praise God. Praise God that He's doing His work amongst you. Um, praise God. Like if, you, if you're feeling grumbly about your church, yeah, there's always going to be something that's a bit uncomfortable, but praise God you've actually got a church that still resembles what it's supposed to look like, is stirred by the Spirit for all its faults, for all its struggles praise God for what you have so what do we do with verses 43 to 47 this is where the trouble comes in this is where our bubble bursts or often people think our bubbles burst Uh, where's the awe of verse 43 and what about those wonders and miracles and where's the communal house where everyone lives together and the communal marriages, where's the commune house, why don't we have that going on and where's the common purse, by the way, verse 45, which all my needs are met by other people in the church? And, and where's the daily meetings, verse 46? And what about the constant sharing of meals and the hospitality with glad and sincere hearts in our homes there also, verse 46? And where's the favour of all the people in the city, verse 47? And what about the Lord adding to our number daily those who are being saved in that same See, These are the big points of contention that have come out when anyone looks at Acts 2. Uh, these are the points of contention that then say, well, are we really stirred by the Holy Spirit because we're not seeing the precise same things we, they saw back then in this moment? And then people start asking the question, well, have we been abandoned by the Spirit or are we disobedient somehow? Yes, no, maybe, well, you know, maybe we're just a hopeless joke and we're never going to look like that. And some people abandon ship when they look at a passage like Acts two forty-two to 7 because they're thinking, you know what? Our church doesn't look like that. I need to find the perfect church and go there. Don't do that. You'll wreck it because the perfect church only exists in everyone's mind. You put a person in it, eh, sorry. I, you, you, know, you know why marriages are tough? Because you put one sinner plus one sinner now equals two sinners. You just put two sinners in the same room? Oh my goodness. And you're expecting bliss? Wake up. Now grab a hundred people and put them into church. It's not people, a hundred sinful people. And what are you going to get? A whole lot of hullabaloo. It's going to happen. But lots of people will look at their church and say, wow, we don't look like that. We're not as, you know, they are. So therefore I'm out of here until I find one. Well, that's a mistake. But then others look at this baby photo and they say, you know what? That's the pinnacle we should be seeking to reach. That's what we should be pursuing and then lots of churches foolishly try and recreate Acts 2. They, don't, they, they look at it like a pinnacle. They look at it like an ideal. They lock onto this image and they seek to reconstruct it with enthusiasm and single minded zeal and all kinds of knife ed structures that force people to conform. And every now and again, some church somewhere will claim that they got close. And they'll write a book about it. And there'll be a course about it how you can do it too. But here's the thing they don't last. They never last. Every single one of them burns out, flames out, falls and falls. Why? Well, maybe they were pursuing the wrong thing in the first place. Search the records of history and besides one example, straight after Pentecost in Jerusalem, when you had a very unique, uniform, homogenous group of people that had all been just converted out of Judaism and all lived in the same town and village in that same spot and just gone through the exact same experience of seeing Jesus crucified and had the same conviction of heart, well, at that moment, there's a whole lot of unity. There's only one point in history where this has happened and that where it's found, and it never exists again. Keep reading Acts and you'll find that it actually goes bunkum pretty quickly. They've got to put all kinds of structures in to work out how do we deal with the tension now of having Grecian people come from a Greek background and converted, and the, Jew, the Jewish people have been converted. We've got to put them in the church now. What do we do? I don't know. It's, it's constant tension. And on and on and on we go right through Acts. And they need to keep trying and struggling and repenting. And that's why then all those letters are written that we looked at over these last two days to get the information. And more importantly, search the scriptures and you'll find that nowhere is the church ever commanded or even requested by God to do this, to try and do this, to try and emulate those first few weeks in Jerusalem. In the same way that no one is ever foolish enough to try and become a newborn baby again, we should not be foolish or so foolish as a church to make the basic misjudgment of recreating the Acts 2 church. So, what's the point? Can we draw anything from those verses? Can we learn anything from them? Well, yes, we can. Ask yourself these questions. Verse 43 Are you, as a church, in awe and wonder of the things God did through the apostles? Are you? Are you historically grounded in that? in that identity beginning of pentecost by the spirit well if not then repent and start doing it if so then praise god and keep on going verses 44 and 5 are you generous toward one another when people are in need not just does the church do it for you but do you do it for each other and assist each other do you know each other well enough so that you can meet each other's needs well if not then repent and start doing it and if so then praise god and keep on going Verse 46, do you prioritise meeting together for fellowship, hospitality and praise? Are you interested in other people's lives in the church as Christians beyond what happens on the Sunday? Well, if not, then repent and start doing it. If so, then well, keep on going. Verse 47, do you pray for the Lord to add to your number? Are you ready and willing to welcome new people when he brings them to you? If not, well, then repent and start doing it. If so, then well, praise God and keep on going. There's never going to be a time when we get this right. The Christian life and the life of the church is a life of constant repentance. Constant forgiveness coming from the Lord for the way we muffed it yesterday and the opportunity of a new day to do it again until Christ returns. And from us, the constant need for repentance as we grow and mature. We don't need another Pentecost just like we don't need another crucifixion of Jesus. The work's been done. One outpouring of the Holy Spirit was enough. One beginning of the church was enough. We're the same church as we were back then. We're just older and more numerous and spread throughout the world as we fill and subdue the earth, not by childbirth anymore, but by the proclamation of the gospel, bringing new life to others by speaking the truth and showing it visibly in how we meet. So the wow factor is not gone. It's just spread throughout the world in a whole new way. The wow factor is there in Richmond because you're a spirit stirred church and we should pray that it would always be so. So yes, celebrate, absolutely. Celebrate what happened back then. Celebrate and rejoice in what's happening now. And as you move on from this day as the saints of Richmond, together, now is the moment to be living lives for Jesus. Living lives for him together and together giving him the honour and the praise. Amen.